if we were talking about the position of women in the world today, where would we be if, where, where would sexism and feminism figure into that discussion hugely, right? And where would we be without the women's movement? Well, if we're talking about the role largely of older people in the world, that is how central ageism needs to be to the discussion, whether we're talking about ageism in the workplace or ageism between our ears. Welcome to the Lifelines podcast, brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. I'm Marina Aris. And I'm Diane Fenner. And we're your hosts. This is the podcast for book creators, book lovers, and literary ambassadors. Join us each week as we explore the writing life, the art, and the business of creating great books. Welcome to another episode of Lifelines, the Books Podcast. Here with us today is author and activist Ashton Applewhite. She is the author of This Chair Rocks, A Manifesto Against Ageism. Ashton has been recognized by the New York Times, The New Yorker, National Public Radio, and the American Society of Aging as an expert on ageism. She blogs at This Chair Rocks, has written for Harper's, The Guardian, and The New York Times, and is the voice of Yo, Is This Ageist? Ashton speaks widely at venues that have ranged from universities and community centers to the TED main stage and the United States. I'm sorry, United Nations. I'm so used to saying states. Welcome to our show, Ashton. It's a wonderful experience to finally meet you after us preparing for what's been a little over a month now, right, Diane? And we've been waiting. Yeah, but you were recently on a book tour for This Chair Rocks? For This Chair Rocks, yes. I, I self-published it, so germane to many of your readers. Um, three years ago uh, this March, so... March 2016, and then about a year and a half ago, I sold the rights to a new division of Macmillan called Celadon, which brought it out exactly three years later. So I did a book tour here in the US, and then I went to London for a week to promote the UK edition. Were you at the London Book Fair? I was there this year. Oh, I was no? not. No. Okay. No. Okay. Too, too, too small cheese for that, but <laughs> no. you never know. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, congratulations from to you for going from self-published to Macmillan. Was that something you initiated, or did they reach out and find you? Do you attribute this to something that you did, or just... no? We we did it. The, the we in this context, although he would be making lines, you know, fingers across his throat um, gestures, is my partner in in life, um, whose name is Bob Stein, and he worked in electronic publishing for a long time. I have to say that if I didn't, you know, if I did not have the services of someone like the, you know, Indie Writer Project, I could not have self-published myself because I wouldn't have had the the technical chops right. or the um, sort of fight. I mean, he's very curious about what's happening to to writing and communication as a whole as we move from chunks of dead paper to network screens. Sure. So he's curious about the, the logistics mm -hmm. and the distribution and who takes what piece of what Can we pie. meet him? I want to meet him. I can say, <laughs> darling, you could make a fabulous living doing that. And he's like, I don't want to do that. Um, um, yeah, and I did have, I mean, I've been writing and speaking about ageism for over 10 years now. So I had a mailing list. I had the proverbial platform. I had a bunch of speaking engagements. So we had that to build on. Right. So the, um, I'm, I'm sure the blog helped a great deal. Yeah. And the blog, I mean, 
you know, I, I never set out to be a writer. I sure as shit never set out to be a public speaker. I don't have an ounce of the performer in me, but I do feel, I, I guess, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm an evangelist. Um, I'm an atheist, but I'm an evangelist for um, a cause, you know, that just seems incredibly important to me individually and collectively. So that makes it easier because I feel like, you know, the book and my and my talks are about this message that's much bigger than mm -hmm. I am, you know, and it's not that there's no ego involved, but I feel like I'm sort of a, a vessel right. for this larger message. Have you ever taken a personality test? No. I know this is not, this is not something we ask people <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I'm an introvert. Okay. No, no, it's because it's <laughs> I recently took one this year and I found out that I was an advocate and you sound so much like an advocate, like yeah. someone who just has this cause that moves you. And so you're using writing, which you never thought you would. Right. Well, yeah, I didn't, I mean, it's not, it's more surprising to me that I ended up also doing public speaking. Uh, I, I mean, my first job way back when I had a real job was as an editor. So, and I was always an avid reader. I don't write because I have a burning desire to write. I find writing miserable and slow <laughs> and agonizing. My daughter said once, ages ago, she said, well, why do you write if you, if you hate it so much? And I said, because when I read something that I've written that I'm really happy with, it feels great. And when it feels like something that is important from a personal self-realization point of view and a social justice point of view, I have to say that's the damn cherry on top. Hmm. Yeah, I remember when uh, you and I were together at another event and you were talking about ageism and some people in the Q&A were asking how to overcome certain specific obstacles. It was workplace ageism. And you spoke like a person who just wants to spark something and then move on and spark something somewhere else. And you said, uh, well, remember in feminism when back in the days when women didn't have jobs in the areas they have jobs now? And what happened in between? And this is what you can do to overcome your problem, even though you couldn't point them to a particular law or plan. And it was very much like watching somebody who knows how to ignite a movement. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> so I this, assume that's what you mean about I having mean, to write. The to book do has jam. The book has tons of, you know, specific legislation we should follow and, you know, and legislation that's helping us getting there and specific policy recommendations, but I'm not a policymaker, right? The, the thing that I can do that no one else can is to try and excite people about this. I mean, if we were talking about the position of women in the world today, where would we be? If where where would sexism and feminism figure into that discussion hugely, right? And where would we be without the women's movement? Well, if we're talking about the role largely of older people in the world, that is how central ageism needs to be to the discussion, whether we're talking about ageism in the workplace or ageism between our ears, right? I do want to make the point that ageism is any judgment about anyone or any group of people on the basis of age, and younger people experience a lot of it too. Sure, the millennials, and you keep seeing that that word is like... Yeah, so it's not just yeah. an old people's problem by any means. Right. Older people bear the brunt of it because we live in a youth-obsessed culture. But one thing that's super important is to not fall 
for old versus young framing of stuff. We see a lot of it around the election, you know, too old to be president, or why don't millennials get out and vote, or why did the boomers suck up all the good stuff? All prejudice pits us against each other. Right. Like stay-at-home moms arguing with moms who work outside the home about who's a better mom instead of joining forces right. to close the damn wage gap so that women could choose whether or not to stay home. So Right, right. Yeah, I think we see it a lot around the social security social security argument, right? That uh, uh, there was that advertisement for a while where they had these two old people who were saying, um, we don't want to you know, lose our social security because young people, uh, I, I can't quote the two old people, yeah. but they were the kind of people who you picture saying, get off high law. Yeah. And that's who they had as the iconography for members of the older generation. It's not okay. And, you know, and I mean, would you have a, you know, a, a, a black person speaking bad English and eating watermelon? You know, it is that, it is that offensive, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, some caricature of a, you know, effeminate gay man or whatever you know you you we don't mock people on that basis anymore we look at their character and what they're capable of and age you know we shouldn't be discriminated against on the basis of anything about ourselves we cannot change and it's very effective to point out gee would that language you know be okay if it was on the basis of who i slept with or what color my skin is well my age is no more fair game the longer we live the more different from one another we become, and the less someone's age tells you about what they're capable of, physically, mentally, what they're interested in, anything about them. Well, and what's particularly annoying to me sometimes is when I see publications or um, just uh, commercials, things that are trying to reverse the stereotype of aging, and what they do is they create a character in their film, or they put somebody in their advertisement who has one dimension of personality, which is that they're old, nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or that, that that older person is, you know, jumping out of airplanes right, or right. skateboarding. And that's <laughs> actually at the London Book Fair the year before, I actually loved the image, but there was an image of a, of a really beautifully dressed older couple still holding hands. And I think he had a skateboard and she had roller skates. I forget. It was something like that. But, it's a, and, yeah. but it was a gorgeous image, but it, it certainly made me stop and think, what are they really trying to tell right. me, right? What are they really trying to say with this image? And and it can go both ways, I actually. mean, it's good because right? I, I put you on the spot a little bit and noticed that you did something which we all do. I still do it all the time. I just did it, is to use the word still. Still uh-huh. holding hands. Like, why do we use that word right. when it refers to something perfectly ordinary? Right. If a person is still climbing Mount Everest at 90, that warrants a still. It's true. Right? But why wouldn't we hold hands, have sex, eat ice cream, right. sing, right. you know? Right. If it's an athletic feat like skateboarding, that I will, you know. But other than extreme athleticism, you know, older people do the same stuff right. that younger people do right to the end. Right. Which is, um, and those, you know, those stereotypes, they're good in that they challenge our idea of older people as sexless and decrepit and, you know, staying at home and sad and lonely. But they are also stereotypes. Benevolent stereotypes are stereotypes, too. And that whole, it's, it's called successful aging or positive aging industry is, is highly classist. Those things cost money, and those things require leisure, and those are things that are not available to a huge percentage of the population. So it's important to call that out, too. Sure. Well, do you think that there's a reason why this is happening now as opposed to any other time in history? 
has to do with the baby boom, and I'm dead center, born in 1952, finally getting old enough to realize like, oh darn, even though we're so um, unusual and so exceptional and so different than our parents and our grandparents, and in some legitimate ways we are, guess what? We're still gonna get old. I think the whole globe is starting to realize that for, for better and for worse, there's a whole lot more oldness than there used to be. And you know, you will, I am not a Pollyanna. There are real challenges associated with supporting an older population. But let's tell both sides of the story. There are opportunities here too. I mean, millions more healthy, well-educated adults than ever before in human history. And we don't know what to do about that. We, roles and institutions have yet to catch up. This has happened incredibly fast. So if we look at this through a gloom and doom standard capitalist scenario of all these old people are just you know a, a drag on the economy, which they are not, uh, you know, then our, our, the way we adapt to this are going to be very different than if we see the opportunity as well as the challenge, if we acknowledge it's going to happen to everyone, if we acknowledge the role of class, the role of capitalism, the role of gender in shaping the, the way the culture shapes the experience. Right, I was going to talk about the experience for a moment because well, everything you touched on for me means that we have to shift our perspective a little bit. We need to really open up our eyes and see more than than what we've been, you know, sort of accustomed to thinking for so so long. Bingo. But now we shift our perspective, and now we need to talk about experience. Okay, well, what does experience mean? Is does it mean? Um, okay, shifting perspective, that's more the general consensus in society. But now the people themselves who are in these age groups need to act. Well, right? Because now they they're, if they're given license to, to I would even I would even contest the idea of age groups. Right. You know, right. things we think of as generate we there's two sides always. We are each a product of the time and place when we were born. It's like age is real. You know, old is different from youth. Right. So it's not, I, I hate the discourse around age is just a number or you can just wish it away. Age is real. We're a function of the time in history that we were born, that our parents were born. But a lot of the stuff we talk about as generational effects are not unique. At all. I mean, for example, the way millennials are dissed for like changing jobs and not being reliable. When we were 30, we changed jobs all the time too. Right, right. right? That's not an age effect. Not that's not, not a cohort effect. <laughs> right. That's an age effect. It's a right. function of your. So that's an, another thing to watch out for is right. language that, you know, millennials are this way, boomers are that way, because how right. could anything right. possibly be true? You know, a, a class has way, way, way more to do and privilege with our ideology and how we relate to those around us and how old we happen to be. Sure, sure. I agree. I agree. What kind of a reaction are you getting as you go around spreading the message that's here? <laughs> spreading the gospel. Spread. Spreading the mission. <laughs> the mission. There it goes. Um, I get fantastic reactions. I mean, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm very jazzed because 10 years ago I was saying, you know, this is what ageism is, and here's why it's a problem in all these different domains. And now, having just crisscrossed the country and the Atlantic, um, you know, people are saying, "How can I, you know, how can I be less 
anti-ageist in architect. I mean, architects came up to me in Pittsburgh. We're, we're building stuff that older people are going to live in. How can we be sure to bring this consciousness well, to right. it? See, this is, when, right? this is what I'm talking about. Right, this shifting is what it gets from ideas to yes. tactics. Yes. You know, yes. medical students, like, wow, medical school, no one, we don't even study geriatrics, and it's really ageist, and that's crazy in an era of person-centered care. How can we not talk about prejudice against people who make up, you know, two-thirds or three-quarters of our patient base, and so on. So that's super exciting and I and I know that a movement is underway in, in a tactical sense from that and also I know because um, with two colleagues I started a site called Old School uh, which is oldschool.info which is a clearinghouse of free vetted anti-ageism resources hmm. not how to live forever not how to look good with gray hair anti-ageism resources and since we launched it last august we have to add new we've added new sections one of which is a campaigns section which is anti-ageism campaigns the world health organization is one of them because the attitudes towards aging affect how our minds and bodies function at the cellular level. It's not the World Oldness Organization, it's the World Health Organization. Australia launched a national anti-ageism campaign called Every Age Counts wow. last October, and they're bringing me over in November, and there's some in the US as well. <laughs> so that is tangible evidence that we are moving in strategic ways uh, you know, to raise awareness of ageism and dismantle it. I think that's fantastic. Thanks. And good for you for being a part of that movement. Thanks. That's a legacy that will live on for, let's not talk about how long it'll live on for, but it'll live on for sure. Uh, well, the last thing I wanted to say while we were on this subject, because you have written about other things that we'd like to talk about, and then Diane, if you have anything else you'd like to ask, is I wanted to touch on the idea that it, it's not just how other people view those of us who are older, but how us that are older, like even myself at 45, I started to say, sometimes I joke, oh, I'm over the hill, or I'm not over the hill. Or, or, you get all the points for saying us, not them. Right. Oh, there we go. Okay, there we go. But uh, thank you. <laughs> so, what I, so to really end this with a really, what you just said is phenomenal, but the, the other idea that I think is really important is that we all then can, can view ourselves as we're getting older and see what the what what are the possibilities? What are the things that we do want to do? Well, just what look, are the, look at the older know. people around you. You know, most of us, I have never met anyone, no matter how scared they are, whether because they haven't, you know, educated themselves or just because they're human, you know, right. who actually wants to be any younger, no matter how scared we are, because we know that we're the sum of all our experiences. For women, late life is often the best time of all because we're liberated. I was going to say, I'm having a good time. Right? <laughs> I feel way more powerful right. than I ever have. Right. There's a, a thing in the book, it's a phrase I appropriated from a geriatrician named Joanne Lynn who called herself an old person in training. Uh oh. And I came across it a decade ago and I had no idea how important it would be. But just, it's just, it's an imaginative connection to your future older self, which can be, she can be as far off in that horizon as you need her to be. When you're young, it's really hard to imagine being old. And I don't think that's ageism. Right. I think it's human. But if you can avoid getting on this hamster wheel of age denial, it's never going to happen to me. I don't want to think about it. That's where the trouble starts, right? Sure, sure. And if you can sure. say, someday I'll be old, right. and make that psychic and imaginative connection to right. your future self, then you don't do that othering thing that right. powers all prejudice. Right. Turning a group into other than yourself, other color, other race, 
The weird thing about ageism is that that other is your own future older right. self. If you don't fall into that trap, the better off you are, the earlier you start. And the other weird thing about it is that we forget every single one of us will enter into that other. It's not like, look, I'm never going to be Chinese, you know, no. so I can't afford to. It's like I'm no matter who I am, everyone who's calling somebody else old is going to be in that same. Right. Position. And I'll let you know, there are older people. I mean, I, you know, people say, when does old begin? Well, arguably, if there's more road you know, behind you than ahead, but we're still, we, we have, we so deeply internalize these negative attitudes about age and aging that people are like, I'm not old, you know, right. or I, uh, and so the fact that you're able to say us is a huge, huge step because then you're already sort of over this hump of pretending like there's some dividing line between old and young after which it's all going to suck. There is no dividing line, right. obviously. If anything is not a binary, right. it's right. age. I mean, you know, we've, we, we, if, we've, if we've come to accept that gender isn't a binary, why on earth are we still hung up on some imaginary old young thing? It's why I use the word olders and youngers as nouns, because as a writer, I literally got tired of typing older adult <laughs> or older American, and I started to use it as internal shorthand. Right. And then I just started to use it, and now all my friends it sounds do. good. I it, like it. It works. I mean, I'm very leery of neologisms, but it works, and one of the nice things about it, it's value neutral. It doesn't imply that older is better or senior or more valuable because right. everyone is equal. But also, we're olders and youngers at the same time. We age in relation. Right. to each other in the world. So right. it, that's the thing. There's no there's no binary. There's no dividing line. Right, right, right. I like that. I but like we've that. all come to observe it. I do it to myself all the time. I try to get away with looking younger than I am. I try to wait, get away with telling people I'm younger than I am. I get flattered when they get my age wrong. And I, I, do, I think everybody does. I get frustrated. I, I actually read the beginning uh, where you wrote about being at a certain age and people saying, oh, you look good for your age. I get that all the time because I'm, I'm, well, you I'm 25 the, and nobody believes me. You know me. the snappy answer to that? I one? saw it. I saw it. And you look good for your age, too. I love yeah, it. Yeah, you look good for your age, too. And then someone has to think about why what they intended as a compliment, right. you know, isn't a compliment. I mean, Diane, try to see if you can switch out the word younger uh -huh. in what you just said for more active or prettier or more energetic, whatever the actual attribute is, instead of young meaning all good things, right. and bad meaning all awful terrible things. Exactly. You know, I mean, when I was 13, I felt hideous, incompetent, and, you know, lonely, or all these awful things way worse than I've ever felt since. It's it not a function of age. It feels it's like you've had some practice at expanding <laughs> your vision of people who are pigeonholed. And I know that your previous book was about was about women, and um, I just wonder if this is part of a progression from having looked at other sort of social prejudices, and then you you kind of got the knack for unpacking these um, labels that we use and said, "Aha!" And we're doing it with ageism too. Well, when I my my first book, which I wrote, gosh, almost twenty five years ago, ninety seven, I, I think. Right? Yeah, I mean, writing books is horrible. Writing is horrible. You sound like a typical writer. You don't know that we all sound the same. We say this about it, but we are compelled. I never wanted to write another book. Um, 
But give us a title of that book. It's Cutting Loose, Why Women Who End Their Marriages Do So Well. Right. And it is not an anti-marriage book. It is an anti-patriarchy book. It is a book about how it is hard to have an egalitarian marriage in a society that treats men and women differently. And the people I'm writing for, which is not just women, are those who aspire to being equal partners in the relationship, however they define that. you know. Um, and the catalyst for that book was I decided I, I was had been married for 11 years. I had two little kids, could not stick it out. And my attorney said, uh, just a passing comment, that more and more of his clients were women who were realizing they didn't you know, have to stay in the marriage. And I went home and found out in two seconds that two-thirds of divorces were initiated by women. It's been that way forever. Some people know it. Um, it's still constant 25 years later. I was astonished. I thought it was like 98% guys dumping their sad, withered, right. you know, old, old, pathetic wives or fertile young trophy versions. And I sort of smacked myself in the head and went, why don't we know this? Is marriage so terrible? Is life after divorce not so terrible? And what I came to discover in the course of writing the book is, of course, that it is misogyny and sexism and patriarchy that make it hard for the husband and the wife to, you know, to have an egalitarian marriage. None of those forces are our friends. Mary Catherine Bateson, the writer, said it really beautifully that in a traditional patriarchal sense, the, the wife serves the marriage and the marriage serves the husband, right? right? And that force is not your husband's friend either if he aspires to egalitarianism. 22 years later, when I started investigating age and aging, and again, in two seconds, I learned so many facts that are right at the top of the internet, um, you know, about, I mean, about age and aging that were so much more positive. For example, I thought the odds of ending up in a nursing home were pretty good. Percentage of Americans over 65 in nursing homes? I would have said 20 or 30. Yeah, that's what I would say. It's two and a half percent. Really? Not all, that low. Not all senior residences, right. right? But nursing homes. It's down from 4% to two and a half in the time I've been writing about this. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and that people are happiest at the beginnings and the ends of their lives, despite living in a culture that tells you you're a useless piece of shit every five minutes, right? Imagine what that'll look like once the revolution happens, right? Or gains more speed. And, you know, I could go on and on. And I was just, once again, the catalyst was, why don't we know this? We don't know it about marriage because we live in a sexist and patriarchal mm-hmm. and capitalist society, which works better if women work for less pay, do all the work at home, and serve the marriage so the marriage serves the man and keeps all the cogs in the machine going to make the people at the top of the food chain wealthier. And we don't know it about ageism because we live in an ageist, sexist, capitalist, patriarchy that works better if people who are not conventionally, economically um, productive and don't get me started on all the ways in which older people are in fact productive in a million conventional and less conventional ways, uh, can be discarded. And it's why we don't care about kids either. It's why pediatricians are underpaid. It's why we're not family friendly. If you don't vote and you don't make money, you have less of a voice in this culture. Have you done a survey and looked around at other cultures? Because I can think of a few off the top of my head that really revere aging. Um, uh, not so many that China, really privilege women. Or, China was China, one of them. They, they have like a whole routine, right? I mean, the dinners and the meals. I think that they have this honor system of sorts where they... 
ritualistically, oh, they hold hands or they walk. I mean, I'm not saying that, like, still hold hands. Like, they, they hold hands with their elders all the time, I think. I've seen yeah. it. I mean, societies which have a, a tradition of Confucianism or elder worship certainly do revere their, uh, their elders um, at indigenous cultures here. Right. In a lot of African-American communities, older women are really, really respected. It, China is a, is a perfect example in that it's become a hyper-capitalist and highly urbanized society. Anywhere people live in a mixed-age community, which typically means you know a village, a small town, there's less ageism, of course, because everyone sees the role that everyone has in culture from the day you're born till the day you die, right? And you're in contact with each other. The U.S. in particular is super age-segregated. China has become way more age-segregated as the very old and young are left you know, at home or in the countryside and people in midlife flock to work in, you know, in, in industry. So those large forces are not our friends. I mean, I, I like to point out the societies where older people held all the power, like early America, were lousy places in which to be young. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want, what you want is a society that acknowledges and respects the very real differences between youth and age without organizing them into a system right. of social inequity and that supports kids for obvious reasons. You know, younger people who, when, when, you're, when you're trying to get your career going and you have little kids, we need to be, you know, infinitely more helpful to people at that stage. We need to work longer. Obviously, it's absurd to think that, you know, at 65, everyone's going to go sit on a porch swing, even if they could afford to do it, and then sit on that swing for 30 more years. But again, roles in institutions have yet to catch up. So we have an enormous um, task of, you know, that's going to affect every domain of our lives. But, you know, in the Paleolithic era, we, uh, we started living long enough to have grandparents. And that is when we developed art and music, and human civilization flourished. Interesting. And because older people became repositories of knowledge, right? We are now experiencing four and even five living generations. There's also a ton of alarmist rhetoric, right, about the gray tsunami and all the old people are going to suck all the good shit out to sea. You know, if we fall for that line of thinking, we will never take advantage of the enormous potential of longer lives, and also we won't be compassionate and thoughtful about the support that those lives will also require. Sure. And I think what you're touching on in a, in a way without, is it's mindset. I mean, perspective mm-hmm. shift and mindset. And the mindset has to be changed around not only how we are living, but what we can contribute, because we can all make a contribution yeah. to our last day, right? Yeah. Um, and so, it starts between our ears. Definitely. And I agree with you. Um, I wanted to... to um, take this quote from your book, which I loved, which is, I think, uh, just a small sort of uh, recipe for how to do this right. And that's that, you know, to remind ourselves that this is, I think, very powerful. So children live in the moment because they, that's all they know. And olders do it because time is running out. And living in the present is what makes people happy. Now, I, I tend to really agree with that. And I do feel that Part of this perspective shift is that, is not looking back and forward all the time, but to Mm. start seeing what contribution am I making today? How am I feeling today? What's great about today? And as you noted in your book, there comes that point where you have the role reversal. You have to ask for help and you have to start to let go and grieve and mourn the parts of you that can no longer be what they once were. But let me 
that's absolutely true in terms of physical function, which does decline. That is the, there are two inevitable bad things about getting older. Right. People you've known all your life are going to die, and some part of your body is going to fall apart. Right. But as far as asking for help, we ask for help lifelong. It's not a binary. As we get very old, of course, the percentage, we, we do relinquish control over some things. But it's a great quote in the book from a Dutch gerontologist, autonomy requires collaborators. Mm -hmm. So I think I would like to take the word dependence and independence out of the entire aging discourse and swap it for interdependence. Ah, we are all interdependent all the way along. We do need to ask for more. Right. as we age. I mean, even if it's just with, you know, the shoveling and the schlepping, but it'll be with more than that. But by casting a wide net, by having younger friends, which is incredible. I like the part in the book where you like borrow somebody's children. Oh, it'd be nice. Suck up to other people's kids. That was yeah. good. <laughs> I mean, I think that's an enormous thing we've learned from the LGBTQ community is this whole idea of families of choice, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it, especially for people who don't have kids or, you know, you can ask your kids for some things, but, you know, ask, ask other people. The most important component of a good old age is not health, which I would have sworn that it was. Huh. And then I thought, well, it must be money because you can buy it. It's right. not wealth either. It is having a strong social network. Mm -hmm. And we, it's really, really important. If, if humanity is going to tackle the wicked problems we face, starting with climate change, we need all ages right. at the table. Right. You know, so which is another really obvious reason not to fall for all oh, those old people they won't understand or they don't care about the planet. Some don't, but some young people don't either. Age is never the reason. Got it. So we are we have time for one more question. Diane, do you have something else you'd like to ask before we wrap this? I do, but I don't know how general and interested it is. I'm particularly interested in social policy and I just wondered whether you had any recommendations for what our government or even our private sector could do to, that would be the most helpful in bringing about change? Um, I have tons of them, um, and there is the last chapter of the book is called Occupy Age, and it is full of recommendations. I mean, you know, fund the Elder Justice um, Act. Um, how about enforce age discrimination in the workplace? Uh, how, you know, that, how about make everywhere handicap accessible? You know, how about make the built environment? There's a whole age-friendly cities initiative. I want it to be called the All Age-Friendly Cities Initiative. It came out of, likewise, the World Health Organization because the things that make a city good for old people, parks, public transportation, accessibility, guess what? They Oops, make it good for delivery guys and people pushing strollers. So to um, think of it that way, I, I think there is a tremendous amount of uh, energy around age discrimination in the workplace because if you can't make money, if you can't buy Cheerios for your kids, you really can't afford to, you know, become a social justice activist or anything else. Age discrimination is held to a higher standard of proof than gender or sex, um, gender or racial discrimination. Let's change that. And let's, the other thing I absolutely want is a public health campaign an anti-ageism campaign as a public health initiative because we know that people with more realistic attitudes towards aging, which is to say more positive attitudes, walk faster, sure. live longer, 
are less likely to get dementia. That is the, the cheapest and most effective way to change our attitudes towards the rest of the life and to make the, the to increase not just lifespan, but health span, the percentage of that life that we spend healthy and active. I think that's wonderful. Okay, so we'll stop there. We'll ask you to tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and your books. If you can give us the URL, and we'll include it in the show notes. Uh, my name is Ashton Applewhite, believe it or not. I'm the only one in the world, so I'm super easy to find. My website is thischairrocks.com. Uh, where you can click on resources and find a downloadable guide to starting a consciousness raising group around age bias called Who Me Ageist. You can also find my Q&A Tumblr called um, Yo Is This Ageist, modeled on the superb Yo Is This Racist, where you can send in something you've seen or heard or perhaps done and ask whether it's ageist or not. Um, and I've been thinking out loud about all this for over a decade in blog form on that website. Um, there's also oldschool.info, which is just a, a, a clearinghouse of free, um, except for the books, um, anti-ageism resources, tools, um, videos, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, podcasts, campaigns. Um, and I am at This Chair Rocks on Twitter and Instagram. And I have a pretty active This Chair Rocks Facebook page, too. You rock. You rock, baby. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And we are going to take a wrap there. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a review. It'll help us keep bringing you great content. For show notes, upcoming events, and to participate in the Brooklyn Writers Project community, head on over to our website at www.brooklynwritersproject.com. Questions or comments? Send them to contact at lifelinespodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. Lifelines, the books podcast has been brought to you by the Brooklyn Writers Project. Music for this podcast has been provided by Anthony Nuda of Noble Sense Productions.